a listener production. Howdy, you are listening to the Howie Games Artist Series number one, part B, featuring singer-songwriter, legend, Paul Kelly. From one to the other, a man who I have the pleasure of working with and entertains me on air, on the cricket, on Fox, and more so in the lunch breaks and ad breaks and breaks when he's not commentating, the great Shane Warne, which is uh, Shane Warne, well-known to history, Shane Warne, bowler of mystery, and it's got a real... It's it's got that sort of Caribbean reggae feel to it, and as soon as it comes, I was like, "Yep, that's Warner." You just don't quite know what's coming next, I reckon. Shane Warne, well known to history. Shane Warne, bowler of mystery. And that's that's what the tune describes to me. It's like, oh, where's this going? Which is exactly like Shane is, as you well know. Oh, uh, that's that's well picked. Um, the, the song, the tune is actually based on a a calypso song. Is it by yeah. uh, Lord Kitchener, ah. who was one of the, one of the Caribbean immigrants to England? There was a big influx of um, uh, people from West Indies into uh, into England in the fifties, and there was a very thriving calypso scene. Um, and uh, Lord Kitchener wrote a song called London is the Place for Me. London is the place for me. London, this lovely city. You can go to France. Again, it wasn't intentional, but it's like you start, it was, I was listening to those records at the time and uh, it, was, it was during, I think, the last, probably Shane's last, yeah, with the last series. It's a series where... Yeah, 2007, they, 2007. When they play, when McGrath... Langer. ...and Shane Warner retired at the same time, yeah. Um, so I wrote it just, just in his last year of Test Cricket and I was playing these these clips of records. It was a, like a three-CD set. I was playing playing them a lot. And then and the song goes, London is the place for me. And then so I was just, I started walking around the house singing, Shane Warren, bowler of mystery. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll go, oh, so it's like, oh, I'm writing a Shane Warne song now, am I? So that was, uh, that was fun. He bowled what they call the ball of the century. Mike Gatting looked up, struck as dumb as a post, and walked from the crease like he'd just seen a ghost. Shane Warne's first dash's delivery. You couldn't write songs about two more different people, could no, you? No, the juxtaposition between Bradman, um, a game change over the game of cricket. You had the leg spin, flipper and googly and on it goes. It's um, the, Can I ask you about one more cricket song? Um, aptly titled Behind the Bowler's Arm. And it comes back to your your words being the soundtrack of so many Australian people's lives. I, I would come down uh, from the country and we would go to the Boxing Day test and, you know, you'd come down on the train and you'd, you'd go on Boxing Day and you, you'd catch up with your friends. And um, your, your lyrics to start that song, um, I can't wait for Christmas time because the day after is Boxing Day. That was always me growing up. It was like, don't worry about Christmas. Christmas means the next day 
is real Christmas because we're going on the Boxing Day test and we're taking mum's pork and ham sandwiches oh, yeah. and you ca- you're catching up with your mates who you might not, as you got a bit older through university, with your mates that you hadn't seen for a year and you yeah. might not even see much of the first session because you'd been asking them what girl they'd been seeing or what trouble they'd been in or, or how their new job was going and then you say, and you'll know where to find me, ten rows back at the MCG right behind the bowler's arms. Summer's on its way. And I can't wait for Christmas, cause the day after Christmas is Boxing Day. You'll know where to find me. Ten rows back at the MCG. Right behind the bowler's arm. Because you'd always have that same spot with your mates, whether it was mid-wicket or long on, depends who it was. You just knew you didn't even have to get in touch with him. You just knew Boxing Day will be in these seats and and the boys and girls will be there. I, I love that song. And that's obviously something you would do as well because the, the way you've written it. That's it. That's uh, Where about the country did you come from? Uh, so I went to high school up in Latrobe Valley. So I, I it was in a little place out of Tarrawg and we went to school in Sale. And it was the Red Rattler to take you down on the yeah, V-Line train. Yeah, yeah. And then when we all came down to uni, it was... Yeah, it was no contact. It was just, righto, we'll see you at this time outside this gate. Bang, we're yeah, on. And, yeah. and it's it, it was better than Christmas. It was better than Christmas. Yeah, yeah. So who who, who are your Boxing Day crew and, and what are your memories of that that day? And was it better than Christmas for you? Uh, it was all, I mean, yeah, we, we had a long tradition uh, of uh, going to the Boxing Day test live. Um, it's always my friend Demos and me and then the various others would, would join us to, depending on um, who was around or was interested. But the, the core of it was Demos, usually his daughters, Rini and Rita and me and some of my family as well. But it was the, Demos and me was the one. And uh, we always tried to get there, you know, just a little bit to the right of the, the sight screen so we could get to see what the bowler was doing. Now know where to find me Ten rows back with sunburned knees Right behind the bowler's arm. As for you, Demos. And, you know, sometimes you'd have to move, when they move the sight screen, you'd have to sort of move your seat. So. Everyone would get up and move with it when, the, when Bruce Reed had come on by yeah. the left arm, as everyone have to move. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'd bring the ham sandwiches with, you know, with mustard, just straight ham. Right. Um, From Christmas would, lunch. Yeah, Christmas lunch, of course. And Demos, he's Greek. He would bring, um, you know, uh, these almond biscuits that um, I think his sister made. And,. Uh, <laughs> And we'd have coffee and stuff like that. So, but then you know, a few years back, I, I started to get sick of the crowd, the crowds at, at Boxing Day tests. And I, I've, that's probably just something about getting older. And I even struggle a bit at, at the f- football now, where the scoreboard is always shouting at you all the time. Yes. So, um, I still go to the Boxing Day test, but I usually pick day two or three to go. Right. And now the Boxing Day ritual is go to watch watch it on TV at my friend Billy Miller's place in Yarraville. And Billy's, he's another total test cricket. Billy Miller. Loves his cricket though, Billy Miller. Yeah. You know, um, and he's a, song, <laughs> he's a songwriter too. So we, we often get together to watch test cricket, whether it's, you know, in England or Australia or South Africa or India. <laughs> we'll, we'll always try and find a session that we can go and watch it. We can 
stay at home and watch it. But uh, Boxing Day is in the calendar every year now with me and Billy and his family and maybe a couple of others join us as well. And it's still I bring the ham sandwiches <laughs> and, uh, and then they've usually got, you know, something cooked for lunch as well. So it's, it's just great. Oh, it's such a it's such a magnificent part of Melbourne life, isn't it? Well, so when you're watching now, who, as a man that writes words for a living, who, when you hear their voice on the cricket, whether it be watching um, the Sky Crew at the moment with um, England and India playing, or when you're in Australia and it's you know the Ashes coming up, who's the voice that resonates with you when you're listening to cricket, be it TV or radio? In a commentary sense, oh well, historically it was. I mean, I'm probably talking about the old, the old guys again. You know, for, for TV it was Richie Benno, yeah, and for for radio it was Alan McGilvray, mm. Jim Maxwell. It was great. I, I think I think Shane Warne's commentaries are are really you know insightful. I sometimes think he maybe um, makes the same point too many times. <laughs> and uh, Isha. Oh, you love Isha. Oh, <laughs> now there knows. is a voice. And, uh, yes, who doesn't love it? She, you know what? She's the commentary equivalent of Pat Cummins. Who doesn't love Isha, yeah. I reckon? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> you know, her husband is a um, is a, a singer-songwriter himself. His name is Richard. Oh, right. But he operates as Rich. Yeah, I'll... Um, I'll send you via uh, when we get done. I'll send you some of his stuff. He's a um, what would I know? But he's a very, very talented musician. Oh, a very cool. talented musician. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So if you ever come dance with me, I'm not to left feet of the morning of my aging ways. He's a real rock star type. Righto, footy. Now uh, you played footy. Growing up, who did you support? Being a South Australian, did you used to go to the Sandful? Yeah, yeah. So Norwood, we grew up. Norwood, yeah, right. It, so it was, Kensington was just part, of, really close to Norwood. So all the family was Norwood. My my dad's cousin Kieran Kelly played for Norwood for a little while. So uh, you know, grandfather barracked for Norwood. Um, it was a it was a fam- the family team. We had so one... what was your what was your trip to the footy? How, like how'd you get there? And was it pack sandwiches again, or was it pies in the outer? What do you you know, as as a kid, you go to events like that, and there's there's things resonate with you. I reckon that 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 generate your love of the game. Yeah, just walk down the end of the our street and catch the bus down the uh, the parade. It wasn't that far away. Often go with uh, one or two of my brothers. I remember going with Dad early on uh, before before he died and before he he got um, frail. But uh, so I mainly remember. I can remember very vividly in 1962, and that was going with my dad and maybe a couple of my brothers, and seeing the headline of the we call it the budget, you know, the footy record. We, it was called <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, budget. the budget in South Australia. Yeah, the budget. Yep, yep, yep. yep. And, uh, <laughs> and it was like the the headline was whole towns talking about red legs because that was Norwood, the red legs, and I still rem- can still see that that headline. But I, I so I would my first memories of going to the footy would be from from then about 62, um, and. So all through the all through the sixties, uh, I'd go to watch them play as as a kid, and that was like probably our worst period ever in the history of the club in terms of making. Oh, fire. they were getting smacked, were they? Yeah, we were we were one of those te- really frustrating teams that sort of might, might beat a team above us, and you know, and everyone get excited, <laughs> then would lose to the team we shouldn't lose to. <laughs> one of those teams, and we also had, right. but uh, you know, had Hayden Bunton. Ca- Coach for a while, and we started being a real handball team. He sort of, I remember 
when people talk about Barassi introducing handball in the 1970 grand final, I, I think Hayden Bunton was, was, was before him because he got us using handball a lot, a lot more to sort of get to an event, a position of advantage. Um, Maybe just as they say that you didn't have the cattle. I don't think it didn't. <laughs> it didn't quite. <laughs> it didn't have the cattle. <laughs> it didn't quite work. So <laughs> didn't have the cattle. <laughs> that's, a, that's a famous coaching one when when you get in smack. Now nah, we just haven't got the cattle yeah, out there at the moment. They needed to do more handball practice, but there was a, a real, real uh, uh, strategy there for a while of handballing much more. So yeah, maybe Barras picked it up from Hayden Bunton. Your own football at. at uh, now, so what position was Paul Kelly when he was at school and then playing football in general? Where, where were you? Were you a sort of flashy forward or you more subtle halfback flanker or where, what were you doing? I was a rover. Does anybody, a rover. Does anybody remember rover? <laughs> Somewhere back in my mind that was a bloke that used to chase the footy as opposed to all 18 blokes that do it now. So you're, you're a rover. Who would you oh, – of, of, the, of the modern AFL players um, – Give me some. Uh, Paul Kelly is like who? That's getting around now. Oh, probably more like Liber Liberatore. So Libra. Not not Liber senior or junior. Junior. Okay, right. I mean, no, I'm not nearly as good as him. But I mean, I wasn't fast. Right. Uh, but I was in and under, and I could drift forward. I knew where the goals were. So maybe Liber, except for last week, not a big goal kicker. But um, so sometimes would you know? Well, Rover resting in the forward pocket. So. That's that was what we used to do. Um, so I, I knew where the goals were. So it wasn't a long kick or a big kick. It wasn't fast, but I could get my hands in the ball and kick, kick a goal. You mentioned earlier on, and and again, it's a it's a it's a Melbourne institution, and it was sort of always rumoured that these muso types would get together and do circle work. And I think um, you know the odd AFL player or VFL player at the time would drift down. Was it? Did you? It was there. Is it termed the kick, which is basically you blokes? The kick, yeah. The kick. So how did that become part of your life? It's it's funny thing, isn't it, because you, you grow sport, you, you play sport growing up and then often you drift out of that team and, and, and blokes and girls want to hang on to that, that team footy club environment, don't they? There's something intangible but special about it. Uh, yeah, that's definitely what it's become. I mean, it started... 20, over 25 years ago with just uh, me and a few friends, um, ma- you know, mainly other guys in bands, having kicking the ball around just for fun well, once a week. And it just sort of rolled along for a while like that. And then uh, but it became pretty regular. And then uh, my friend Brian Nankervis here from Rock from Rockwiz, mm. very keen footballer, another, another Pies supporter, mm. um, he heard about it and then, he started coming along, but he brought a whole lot of other people in and comedians and other, and it sort of started to grow from there. And I guess 1995 was our first year where we were sort of became sort of organised because Brian is a great organiser. So he introduced, he said, we've got to have a super kick at the end of the year, you know, so we did a super kick where we all took turns doing, you know, a drop punt. Oh, for the longest distance. Yeah, longer, no, drop, drop punt. Torpedo, wrong foot, kick a free choice, and then handball through a target. And then, you know, this complicated scoring system, of course. <laughs> it sounds pretty detailed, Paul. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. <laughs> Give Brian the credit for that. So we still do that. So that's, um, we've been going, what, uh, it's 26, 
26 years set. We missed Superkick last year, of course, lockdown. We'll miss it again this year, I'd say. We can't even... Yeah, so we can't run around and kick. We're, we're doing one-on-ones, you know, we break up. We, we just, we have our, you know, call up. Someone's yeah. like, we go for a sneaky one-on-one. So that's what we're doing at the moment. And how no, are you travelling? How are you travelling with footy in hand these days? You still Have you still got a sharp pass on you? Uh, yeah, like I said, I can't kick very long, but more like Robert Harvey like that. Uh, he was a player I used to love watching too. Yep. I still do drop kicks and torpedoes just because drop kicks because I can. Yeah, drop kicks, that is old school. I love it. I love it. Yeah, there's, there's a, we have a few. Uh, there's a few drop kicks because yeah, you know that's we range from I guess we have some kids and you know children of the, of the guys, but we have uh, I guess mainly forty to sixty. The oldest oldest kicker is sixty eight. Tiger, <laughs> I think Tiger. Tiger. Uh, and I, I'm up there, so and there were, like I said, when it first started, there was a lot, lot of musicians, and we didn't want to um, be messing our fingers up. So it was always like non-competitive. We're not flying against each other. We just do circle work. That old, you know, old style. Just run, <laughs> kick, mark. The more noise you make, and the more you run, the more you get the ball. And it's still <laughs> like that. Um, we don't have a regular. We have a few different ovals, but we're not official. So sometimes you have to move around and and then people come and people go, but it's a constant. But it's like you said, it's involved into this um, church, I guess, yes. a really, really broad church and and we're great friendships and great support for each other. Some, you know, some people call it a mental health group, uh, men's mental health group, and it's all of that, you know. It's, it's really when things aren't going well in your life and uh, there's all, sort, all sorts of problems, you can just... Go down for an hour and a half and run around and be with your mates. Is it boots or sneakers? Uh, mainly boots. Um, okay. But a lot, a lot of sneakers in warm weather. And hot and, right. And are you wearing a footy jumper in the middle of winter, or are you just going casual clothes? Uh, I've got a, I've got a really I've got a few jumpers. Um, I've got my old school jumper, Ross Trevor College, which is old long sleeve wool. That's when I wear in mid really cold days. And what are their colours? What are the colours? Red and black. Red and black, okay, bombers. And uh, I still I have a, a nice Melbourne jumper. Because here's the other thing, of course, I, when I moved to Melbourne in 1977, I ended up following Melbourne because they were the they were oh, red and need, blue. They were you red needed leagues. a team, right. And they had a, yeah, so the Norwood connection made me follow the Demons. But then when Adelaide, the Crows joined in 1992, I found myself backing for the Crows. And I still get shit from, you know, Melbourne people, you know, <laughs> what team are you barracking for this year? <laughs> well, I, I don't know, Paul. I, if you're going to change back, I reckon now's the time to do it because as we're doing this, there's a prelim coming your way. So of the Adelaide, um, <laughs> indulge me before we get to a couple of songs. Of you, You've seen a couple of premierships, obviously, since Adelaide have come in. They came in and had that amazing win against Hawks to fire things up. Is it a tough one for you. Pick one Adelaide Crow. You can only pick one. From your Jarmans and your Modras and your Rashudos. I don't, even, I don't even have to think about it. Who? Andrew McLeod. McLeod, dual Norm Smith medalist. On the ground, he's worried out of it. Matlin claimed in a tackle. Handball to the excitement machine. McLeod, left foot goal. Oh, don't tell he's me. He's a superstar. Don't tell me. Oh, what about Andrew McLeod? Now, there's a man you could write a song about, Andrew McLeod. Just why McLeod? Uh, well, you know, he, he 
players that stand up in the in the heat of finals. He won two, yeah. two Norm Smiths in a row. Um, but just the way he moved, um, yeah, his grace, his the, I love the way he kicked the ball so softly but perfectly. The way he would pass to Darren Jarman in those finals, oh, yeah. yeah, just to pop the ball out in front of him. Um, the way he could just sort of emerge out of a pack with the ball. He and Robbie Flower, if I'm going to talk about just overall, yep. you know, players that I loved, Robbie Flower from Melbourne and um, Andrew McLeod. Yeah. So you like the, you like the smooth-moving, graceful, economy-of-effort style operators? Yes, yeah, because I'm nothing like them. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to Paul. I, I don't know. You can tell me if... Uh, Leaps and Bounds is a song about footy. I, I don't know. We'll get to playing it at the MCG. But th- those, the start of that song, I'm high on the hill looking over the bridge to the MCG and way up on high, the clock on the silo says 11 degrees. I'm high on the hill looking over the bridge to the MCG And way up on high, the clock on the silo says 11 As a bloke that spent a lot of time in Melbourne, to me that is Melbourne. That is the most iconic description of Melbourne I think I've ever heard. Like, where does that come to you? Does that just pop into your head one night? I actually lived on um, Punt Road on a flat with a second floor flat and with a window facing over the river. So I could see that we could see the G from the flat and I could also see the Nilex clock sign. Right. And we were at the top of the, where um, the Punt Road, you know, sort of gets to its peak up around um, the main road. Yep. So we were just just a little bit uh, north of that. So we we're up on the hill, and that was a view. Um, so that hmm. was that was sort of the opening lines. I wrote that with my friend Chris Langman, who I, I shared a house with, and uh, so we, we started that song way back um, as a melody without without too many words. But leaps and bounds was part of the chorus right from the start, and it was sort of a song. For me, it was a song about nothing, like. Bit like Seinfeld, I reckon. A song about well, nothing. that worked. It worked for them. Yeah, sort of, just a feeling of exhilaration. It was for me. It was an autumn song. I love autumn. It's, I think it's my favourite time of year. So it's a song about feeling sort of uplifted and happy for no good reason, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, the MCG was in it. So, and of course, it works. People have have interpreted it as a footy song, which is fine by me. I think so- songs can be interpreted all sorts of ways. So. But often, yep. if I went to the footy from that flat where we lived, we'd just walk down. So, so you'd be high that. on the hill, looking over the bridge to the MCG. Yeah. So, I don't know what your most comfortable environment is to perform your job as a singer. But you've sung a couple of times, I reckon. Is twenty twelve and twenty nineteen at the grand final? Yes. Yeah. So what's it like as a pretty low key character when you walk out there to the MCG and there's a hundred thousand people and half of them are singing your song? How, how do you convey your songs, which are really intimate songs to my ear, to a hundred thousand people at the footy? And do you sit there and think, wow, geez? I'm playing here on Grand Final Day. This is pretty cool. I remember number 23, Andrew McLeod, 97, 
98. It's pretty nerve-wracking because it, it? when you're only you, doing... So you get say, nervous? Oh, yeah, for, something like that because there's a whole lot of logistics around it and and you're only doing, doing generally only doing one song. So it's, you know, when you do a gig and you, you mess up a song, it's fine because you just, you just have a laugh and play the next song. But if you're just doing one song and it's on live and it's natural TV, there's no going back if you mess it up. So Meat life style. Yeah, so <laughs> it is nerve-wracking. So it's probably not my ideal gig, but it's a really interesting and fun thing to do. And to answer the first part of your question about how do your songs work in that setting, it's a matter of the of all the types of gigs that I do, some we do in theatres where people sit down. I would do a set list that's quite different to a set list that we're, if I was playing in a, a pub or, or a club with people standing and all close together and drinking. And it would be a different set that I might do in an outdoor festival when people are sitting on the grass and it's a bit more of a family thing. And so at a grand final, I play leaps and bounds or dumb things or something upbeat and immediate and sort of more high impact. So, yeah, it's really it's a song. You, shoot, you pick the song to suit where you're playing. So if you're in, if you're at uh, the Corner Hotel in Richmond, back in the day where we could go to venues and you just pack in as many as you could and it's a it's an excited, sweaty, beer-drinking crowd, um, which is my memories of going to to watch you play, what what's your go to if you want to really, and you will have done it thousands of times, so you can answer this better than anyone. What is the song that if you have to go out there and really get the crowd going, of all the songs you've written and performed, what's the one you go to to really get the crowd rolling? Oh, there's there's a few that always get a, a, a good, you know big reaction to a door or dumb things like I mentioned before. How to make gravy now? That's one that's grown in popularity over the years and. That we, you know, it's a song we sort of play all year round, even though it's a Christmas song. Yeah. Yeah, I guess th- th- there's a few. I mean, more recently we're touring with um, Vicar and Linda and uh, Vicar sings Sweet Guy, What Makes a Sweet Guy Turn So Mean, and that mm. sort of that's probably gets the strongest reaction all night, um, her doing that on the, la- on the last tour. So, yeah, there's a few. There's a few we can, you know, there's a few uh, weapons in the... In the <laughs> I strings, like their weapons. Strings in the bow. What is it? Tools and toolkits. <laughs> strings to the bow. <laughs> Can I ask you about one more song? I don't know whether artists love to be best known for one song or, you know, I've heard Colin Hay say that he's had enough playing um, down under and people request it and he, he sometimes says, oh, I'm not going to play it just to, just to stick it up the audience. But to her door, I, I guess a lot of people, when they say your name, that, that's the first song that would come up. What does that song mean to you? Uh, well, it's it's like a, a song that works. I guess I was what I was saying before about tools in the toolkit. It's a, it's a bit like, and you take different tools to, to different different work sites. So, but I mean that's always in it. That's always in the toolkit. Um, and it's to me that's like how to make gravy. That song that that works. It's fun to play. It's an open ended song. I sometimes introduce it as a, a song that ends at ends at the beginning. So. I don't get sick of playing that one. I always like it with the band. It sort of kicks up a gear when the band comes in. Mm. And it was a song, it was an important song to me um, when I first, it was really starting to find, I guess, my own voice in, in what I did. Yeah. 
And I was influenced a lot by an American short story writer, Raymond Carver. He wrote these short stories that were quite spare, minimal, and they often ended slightly unresolved or they often ended and you thought there's something further to come or there was a lot of things around the edges to his stories. So you got a lot of information with few words and also a sense of other possibilities or mysteries about to happen. And so that was a really, really, for me, that was sort of what songs are trying to do as well. So short, short, the short stories to me had a, a lot of similarities to, to songs. You had to sort of get the information across in a short period of time. And I remember with Two Adore, that was the first time, well, one of the, one of the early times I thought, uh, that's, that's kind of what I want to do with songs, um, suggest that, you know, lives, you don't know what's going to happen at the end, you know. Will they get back together and stick together, the couple, or will it fall apart again? So that is an important song for me, that one. It's a, well, like we talk about the the soundtracks of a lot of Australians growing up, but I think that, that's a massive one. Couple of, a couple of quick ones for you. You've been bloody great with your time. Um, going way back, when was the first time you got on a stage anywhere, anytime, and performed in front of people? At a folk club in... In Hobart, in Salamanca, Hobart. Salamanca Place in Hobart when I was 19 in um, 1974. Did you go with the plan of getting up on stage? Was it an open mic or was it a book it open, gig? Or? It was an open mic, yeah. Right. So I went, I sang Streets of Forbes, which is an Australian folk song about the bush ranger, um, Ben Hall, <laughs> which is about the first song I ever learnt, and a girl from the North Country, Bob Dylan's song. Oh. I did two songs. Well, how'd you go? Did you smash them? Did you no, like, wow, think, this I is the future think. of Australian music or not? <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I okay. ended up getting pretty drunk afterwards. I was right, so, okay. so nervous. Um, okay, and then so I probably that, so relieved afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first one. Uh, second one in these short, sharp ones. When was the first time? Can you recollect the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? The one I remember really vividly was Before Too Long because uh, we were, dry, you know, we'd, I was driving with the band, with the messengers from Sydney to Melbourne on the Hume Highway, which we did a lot in those days. And the record came on the radio while we were all in the car together. Before too long, I'll be repeating what's happened before in my mind. Before too long, over and over, just like I And uh, we just, you know, that was a, it. Was the first time we'd heard it coming at us. You know, we played it. Yeah. I mean, you hear it when you play it, record it in the studio. But then to sort of, I could still remember this sort of weird sensation of like, this is our song and it's coming at us, and we're not doing it. We we don't have to do a thing. We all, you know, we all just got really excited and jumped up in the air, turned the radio up really, really loud. <laughs> I think we all sang along. <laughs> And the third one of these shorter ones for you, what is it like when you are on stage and everything is in sync, Paul, between the musicians and the audience and you're singing and people are singing back your lyrics to you that you've written over how many years and you have the audience 
in the palm of your hand? What is that feeling like as a artist? I guess the best description I've had for that is is a phrase by my friend James Black, also a musician, keyboard player. He used to, used to play with, I mean, he played with Joe Camilleri and Mondo Rock and played in the Rockwiz band for, for a long time. He calls it the great oceanic feeling. Um, that sort of feeling where yeah, you feel you can do no wrong, that, uh, it, yeah, I, the most important is part of what you said before, that feeling in sync with, with the band where everything just, it sounds, that's all the nuances, nuances are, um, are happening and you're not thinking about what you're doing. It's just, it's all the practice and the muscle memory and everything is paid off and you're just inside the songs and... Um, the, the songs are singing you in a way. A lot of my songs are character-based. They're, they're written from a point of view of a character or someone in a particular situation. So it's when when you lose yourself in the song and it's the, you're not there anymore. It's just 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 the song, and you can feel when you sort of when you can feel the song sort of hitting on the audience or landing on the audience. You, you can feel them picking up every little thing that's going on. It's a wonderful description. We talked earlier on and you described it really well, that the song sort of having having to come out of you and it just happens. As a general rule of the, you know, 250, 300 songs you've written, how many are in your catalogue, the, the writing process itself, does it just flow out of you and she's done in 20 minutes or can it be a like a, 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 a six-month wrestle to get the words on the paper. I'm sure there's a bit of both as you go. I, I don't know. But as a general rule, how long does it take you to write a song and is it an easy process or is it wake you up in the middle of the night going, Christ, I can't get this right? Um, it's generally slow. It's generally stop-start. Uh, every now and then a song comes really fast. Um, there's a song called If I Could Start Today Again, which is still one of my favourites that was sort of came in about half an hour. That's very, very rare. It's usually I often get the lot of the song or sort of the um, what you break the back of the song quite quickly. That in the sense that you you write something you've got you can see the architecture of the song. You've got the verses and you got a nice bridge and you can see where it could it could be and you've got some words and maybe you've got a chorus and that sometimes that can be really quickly or the idea for a song happens really quickly and you, you get a. A, a good chunk of that idea out quickly. And then the slow part is finishing it off. So I, I often take a long time to finish the words off and sometimes I never quite finish them off and, and I just say, well, that's the best I can do and that's and that's it. But the song we talked about before, um, Every Step of the Way, that was you know, a pretty quick one. Again, that was sort of like fairly, there was an insistent voice and that... Uh, that pushed that one through pretty quickly. To her door, it's seven years between when I first wrote the melody and when I finished the words. Not seven that, years? Not that I worked on it for seven years. It was just I, if I, I get ideas for songs and then I, sing them in, I used to sing them into a tape recorder and now I sing them into the phone. But they're just so I, then they're often just music, musical ideas with sounds attached or maybe a few words attached. Often it's just me sort of singing stuff with sounds and often... Um, Writing the song or finishing the song is just getting words to fit the sound. So it's a bit like, you know, finishing off a puzzle. But that can take a long time. So, Paul, final question I have for you, and I have loved the um, 
the journey through music and sport, two better things I don't think you could combine for two blokes to have a chat about. For all the um, oh, general population that are listening to this, the average punter, but more so for the kids that are listening to that, that can look up and say, wow, this guy's been really successful in what he does. He's a very successful writer, singer, songwriter, performer that want to achieve some success in their lives. Paul, we always finish with the same question and it doesn't, they don't necessarily have to be artists or performers. They might want to be a dentist or or a plumber or a scientist. From your experience, what have you learned that you could pass on to the younger generation as far as how do you go about achieving success? And as as a father and as a now as a grandfather, I know it's a pretty weighty question. I think find something that you really enjoy doing and then that's most of it. You want to have work uh, that also feels like play and that you just want to keep sticking at and keep getting better. And also the other thing that's really important is um, whatever that work is, consult, uh, you know, or look at the people who have done really well in that field that you're interested in. Let, you know, read about them or talk to them if possible or learn from other people. I think all, I think all, I'll just talk about sort of art now, but, um, you know, all, all art or, or music comes from worshipping the people that came before. I learned how to write songs by by loving other songs and then just learning them and you sort of you, got, you sort of learn them and take them inside you and then you learn and study enough songs you eventually find your own own voice it's a great answer um, I was tremendously excited about chatting with you uh, as I said to talk about sport and and music it is really really cool mate I appreciate your time thanks for letting me use some of your music and especially uh, your new song about Eddie uh, which is It'll really get into people's guts every step of the way, which is fantastic. I appreciate you joining me on the Howie Games Artist Series, Paul. Stay safe and hopefully um, I'm in a commentary box at the MCG this Boxing Day and you are right behind the bowler's arm with a crowd in there and we're all safe and happy and back to the life we all love, mate. I really appreciate your time. I hope we get to that. And uh, thanks, Howie. Really enjoyed it. Paul Kelly, wow. What a privilege to listen to how it all happens in Paul's creative world and go back over songs that have played a part in my life and hopefully yours. You can right now download Paul's new song every step of the way on your favourite streaming service right now. So hit it up. Thank you so much to Paul, Daryl and Bill for making this rather large undertaking happen. To Das, who is pushing it uphill at the moment with a new series dropping, but he's still pushing. To MJ, who is lighting up the world of social media, so he tells me. Until next Tuesday on the Artist Series with the cracking chap that is Daniel McPherson. Peace and love. Listener.